I'm coming to the bridge. Ooh, let's see. Let's say a year or longer. All right, you year or longer people, except for Lola and these guys and Kim. These first two rows of chairs, you're not allergic to them. Um, if, if, we could, if I could have it my way, I'd take the first row and move it into the back. But before you know it, you guys would be like in the parking lot. But um, it's really cool. Look at how many empty chairs there are right now. A lot of those are kids that just went and checked in. So this place is full. But uh, I counted chairs this week and have been counting. We're, there's room for more. And when people walk in and they're like, oh, snap, it's packed in here. Um, we, uh, we have, we're like, uh, snap, it's an early 2000s word that people used to use. Um, but it's not, there's room for them. So one way we can make room for more is leaving the back rows open as much as possible. So if you've been here for a minute, this is your spot. Um, move up one row. Would you do that? Would you? All right. No one said yes, so you're going to have to pray about it this week. <laughs> um, it's just one easy way so we, when people come in, we can help them find seats so they can feel welcome, and, and it's just an easy thing to do. Low-hanging fruit. All right. Um, if you are new this morning, welcome. Uh, good to see you. And um, this is the part of the service that we open God's Word, and we uh, pray, and we learn from Him because uh, we know that God wants to teach us things, and uh, His Word is one uh, primary way He does that. So if you have a Bible, would you open it up to Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to invite Nate to come up here, and he's going to read our verses. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, some light reading this morning, um, verses 1 through 8. So we'll give you a second to turn there, and we'll put them up on the screen. Good morning, everybody. All right, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they, cho they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the God's word. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Um, oh, I felt a spirit... Uh, victory in here this morning, Lord, as we were singing to you. Um, thank you for our worship teams that spend the week preparing and, and praying and thinking about um, this time. And uh, 
just in faith, they bring what they've been working on and lead us in that. And this morning, it was evident that those words needed to be sung by us. So, Lord, we just stand here. And as we open your word, we also believe that everything you've been speaking to me all week and been praying um, is exactly what we need. So, Lord, we open your word. We open our hearts. We ask that you would uh, make a deposit into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Like I said, some light reading uh, this morning. We are in a series, we're going through the book of Genesis, but we've been kind of going slowly through these first chapters because in these first chapters of the Bible, you get like the whole Bible in many. We've been looking at the days of creation. We've been looking at the purpose of creation. We've been looking at the partnership of God and humankind and what, what that looks like, the fall of mankind, the way of the serpent, one generation, the way of the serpent making its way into the life of Cain who rose up and killed his brother. And now we are jumping to chapter six and we're going to look at the flood. How did we go from the garden where mankind sought to push God aside and say, we'll do it our way. We know best what's up for us. And here we are uh, just a couple of chapters later. Uh, if you read chapter five, you get a genealogy and how long people live. So it's, it's like 1,600 years that mankind had kind of been doing this thing on their own. And we get to this place where we read these verses this morning. But it's important for us to know like this story. So the story of the flood, it's not, I want to, I'm going to undo some things for some people that you've built in your head. And maybe we're going to build some new uh, ways of thinking and, uh, around this idea and this event of the flood. Because the flood is not a simple story. It's not a simple open your Bible and read it, open and shut. Oh, okay. Good beats bad. Uh, that's what it says, and that's what it means. Bad people lose. God wins. Uh, he doesn't like bad people, therefore, he killed them. Um, it's not what it means. But it's a lot what a lot of people have built up in their minds that it means. It's actually very complex. It's a very detailed account. There's nothing written by the early authors. They weren't like um, prehistoric men that were like, oh, God flood earth. It, they, the, the way they wrote was beautifully complex. This account of the flood has these radical plays on words that are intentionally put in. It has cross-cultural references that were meant for the Egyptians and the Babylonians, not for, not for us. Because remember when Genesis was written and when it was given and who wrote it. By way of review, to best knowledge, who wrote Genesis? Just someone throw it out. Thank you. Moses got Genesis from God at some point 
when he, maybe when he was on Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, maybe he came down with, he didn't come down with just two tablets that had Ten Commandments. He says all of the law. Everything you read in Deuteronomy and they're going over, this information came down with Moses. It also could have been the account of Genesis or at some point during his life, the oral um, accounts that had been passed down to him. But Genesis wasn't written to us. It was written to Israel. It was written to Israel in a time where they had just come out of 430 years of oppression and slavery to another culture. So these cross-cultural references that are put in on purpose, and we'll, we'll look at them, it's important. One of the commentators that I'm reading, he says, the account of the flood gives every indication of being a carefully wrought and intrinsically complex narrative. He points out, there are seven principal stages in this narrative. Number one, the decision to send the flood to rescue Noah. Number two, the command to build the ark. Number three, the command to enter the ark. Number four, the floods come. Number five, the floods abate. Number six, the command to exit the ark. And number seven, the building of the altar in the covenant. Within each stage, this commentator says, the author has arranged a whirling array of activities which catch the reader up in the fury of the flood in the sense of the appending judgment of God. It is significant to note how the author guides the reader's participation in the narrative by tightly controlling the point of view from which the story is told. It also connects us, the story of the flood, to what writers would call a meta-narrative or the big picture. It fits within the entirety of the biblical narrative. So when we read the story of the flood as a part of an ongoing story of redemption, it points beyond itself and singularity to something bigger. And it turns out this violent event in history turns out to be a step along the way of God restoring the broken creation that man forfeited in the garden and that God would redeem through the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Though we may be tempted, and I have been in the past for sure, to skip over a narrative or a story like this or any difficult passage like the flood or others, it's actually these exact places we should give extra attention and pray about and explore. Maybe you have questions about difficult passages in the Bible or about hard things that God has done or allowed to happen. And it has caused you to doubt the goodness of God. I'm here to say that things like this don't have to... Um, be enemies of our faith, rather they can help grow our faith and can lead others to their place of faith. So let's look at the details of this account. Now, I'll be the first to admit I've been preaching long the past few weeks because it's just been so good and there's so much that I want to communicate about the goodness of God. So instead of doing this whole flood account in one Sunday, which I started out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I was like, this is going to be long we're going to break up the flood. We're, going to, we're actually going to slow it down, and we're going to look at it for the next three weeks, okay? 
So I've broken the flood up and the story of the flood narrative into three parts. And so this is where we're going. This week, uh, what God saw, the perspective of the flood. Uh, the next week, what God did, the reason for the flood. And next week, we have our baptism. So it's really cool, and it's going to tie in beautifully um, with the baptisms and people that are going to share. And then the third week, uh, we're going to talk about what God meant by it, the meaning of the flood, the lesson. What did God want the Israelites to know? And in, in the culture of the day, and in turn, what does God want us to know? So we're going to look at perspective. I'm, I'm kind of mini-series in this whole thing. And here's the title of each week's message, part one, part two, part three. We're going to call it this. What's up with the flood? What's up with the flood? We look at it, and we read it, and we see all the stuff, and we're like, what's up with that? This week, we're going to look at the perspective. One of the hardest things about scriptures like this, and let's just, we'll just be honest. Actually, one of the hardest things for human beings in general since the fall in the garden is seeing things, especially hard things, from any other perspective except the first-person perspective. You know what I mean? The perspective that what I see, what I perceive, what I feel. So when people look at the story of like the flood, let's say, it can be a huge stumbling block to someone to see the goodness of God because they may some, say something like this. How could a good God do this? Or I hear all, not all the time, but some people would be like, I could never believe in a God who, and then they say something, or I could never serve a God who. The thing, what but the thing is, all of that is from a first person's perspective. Their world is wrapped around what they see, what they hear, what they perceive, and what they've experienced. The thing about, and so we approach a story like the flood or something like that from our perspective. And so we're like, how could God do that? But you have to understand the flood account in here is not written from a person's perspective. It's written from God's perspective. The same way we read Genesis 1, when God said, and then he spoke something into existence, it's from his perspective. Let us make mankind in our image, God says. So there's this sense of, if you can believe, what did I say at the very beginning? If you believe Genesis 1, verse 1, the rest of the Bible will fall into place. But once the serpent enters, he says the same thing to us as he did to Mary. Did God really say? Is God really good? You can't trust his perspective. you got to look at yours. That's, that's how it goes. But this is from God's perspective. And you can't read or fully understand the flood apart from reading and fully understanding creation. There's a term right here. He saw. Remember at the beginning? It's a very important term. God saw what he had created, and he said it was day one. He saw it was good. Day two, he saw. He made a statement. It was good. Now we get what does God see now? So we're going to come back into those verses, all right? We'll pick it up in verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. Look at this. Then the Lord saw. What did he see? He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted 
that he had made man on earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, I am sorry that I have made them. Do you notice that this is like creation in reverse? The things he spoke in, now he is saying, I'm going to undo these things. Not undo, but he's going to do away with these things. I am sorry I've made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, because Noah walked with God. Verse 10, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Bang. So when you're reading that, as you're reading any biblical narrative, just as by way of teaching you how to study the Bible and read the Bible, look for repetition. It's on purpose. Look for key words. Look for key themes. Look for... Uh, amount means something. That's why when you read stuff and you read like the verses, truly, truly, I say to you, he's not, there's not a stutter. Uh, it's all on purpose. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's not, he's not rapping. And it's not a remix. It means something. All three. It means it, it, repetition matters. So I want to talk about the three things. Actually, I have four things here that God saw. Before we get to God sent the flood, and then week three, why and the covenant that he made with Noah and mankind and the animals and the earth, which is really cool. He'll get to the meaning, but I want to point out four things that God saw. The first one is this. God saw the heart. Did you catch that? We're told throughout scripture that this is what God looks at. 1 Samuel 16, 7, a famous passage, maybe some of you have heard it, heard it but it says that when it, comes to, when it came to King David, this, this kid who was like a nobody in his, in his family, he was told that uh, he was not even worth be inviting to dinner. Uh, but God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. For it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is what God bases his decisions on. Only God is all-knowing. Only God sees things that are going on under the surface. You ever hidden something? And you got to get away with it? Because there's a way in which we can live that you can keep stuff under the surface, but nothing's under the surface. It says that, as a matter of fact, with Scripture, this is what it means when it talks about in Hebrews for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and nothing is hidden from it. We are all naked and bare before him whom we must give account. It's just saying 
the Bible reads us. God sees the heart. Now, we can use that in a guilty way toward people, or it can be like a, an encouraging thing. It depends on where God is to you. If, God, if you're like, God knows everything, you're like, I know, it's awesome. God knows my heart. He knows who I want to be. He knows what kind of dad I want to be, what I'm trying to do, and this and that. And God is full of grace, or it can be like, God knows my heart. And it's evil, and it's wicked, and I'm scared of him. But only God is all-knowing. Only God knows these three things, where someone has been, where someone is currently at, and where someone will be. So what did he see when he saw the heart? It says that he saw wickedness in the human heart. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now check this. How great was it? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So it wasn't like they were mean to each other a lot. He says when God looked at the pervasive culture, it was evil all the time. No good ever. Only evil all the time. What does that mean? God looked at a culture who had already made up their minds about him. Their minds were made up. Remember when we were talking about Cain? Um, Adam and Eve. Eve was, was talked in to sinning. Tempted. One generation, her son couldn't be talked out of it. His mind was made up. Now we move to chapter 6, and we have a whole people. When God looked, it wasn't good. It was actually the definition, the opposite of good, evil. Only evil all the time. There was no changing these hearts. The heart of Cain had spread to the whole earth. And this lets us know something about God's judgment. These are things that I've talked to people over and over because here's, I hope you guys know I'm going somewhere with this because we live in a culture where people are confused about is God good or is God bad because if God judges people, he must be bad. But the thing is, is when we start from, uh, the whole point of Genesis is helping us to see the entirety of the world, not through our eyes, but through God's eyes. And this is what I told some of my best friends who have been struggling like with their faith and stuff over the years because there's this part of us that we're created in the image of God, whether you follow Jesus or not. Like you're an image bearer of God. You, his handprint, his imprint is on you. Whether you choose to acknowledge God's ways over your ways and turn and give up your way and follow God and his best for you, that's... That's up to you, and we're all in different places of that process. But I've told people over and over that are struggling with, they're like, well, what about the, let's just be very real, okay? What about the, what about the, the wars in the world? What about the, the things that the church has done over the, what, what about all of these things? How could God be good if? And I'm just, I find myself being like, bro, I don't know, man. 
I don't know why those things have happened. I know this, someone made me mad the other day and in my mind I punched him in the mouth. And then I left and I judged that person in my heart because they offended me and they made me mad. And then it wasn't until I talked with, it, with my wife or with my boys and kind of talked about what I was going through that I realized it was more about me than them. God was doing something in me. But this is what I tell people all the time. God doesn't execute just, God does not execute judgment on faulty or partial information. God knows fully. So when someone says, well, what about the person over on this side of the world in this place? And they'll be like, and they've never heard the Western Christian Jesus gospel. What about them? God knows them. God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. He's the creator. He's not bound by a cultural context. He's not bound by the amount of evil in the world. We're talking about God who created everything. He's bigger than any box that we would put him in. And so I would say, I don't exactly know how God might interact with that person or that village or that people group or that conflict happening right now, like how the particulars of the families and the refugees and this and that, but I know who God is. And God is a seer of the thoughts and intents of heart. And he created each of those people in the image of God. And he knows how to bring his plan to pass. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? God never executes judgment on faulty information. Did you see what he said? Every intent of the heart all the time, their minds made up. It was, when you read Romans 1 and it says that, that, um, a seared conscience given over. It means that when God sees, he's just like, that's, that's what he meant when he says, my spirit will not contend with men forever. Their days will be 120 years. We read that. That's what Nate meant. Meaning, he saw the end. See, God is holy. He is just, perfectly both. This is how we know that God gives everyone. I don't know. I want to use the term a fair trial, a fair shot, because the Bible says each one of us will stand before God one day. And it's like it's been used as like weaponry by the church to people. Like, don't you know you're going to stand before God? You should be freaking scared. But that is all given through this false perspective of stuff like this. Because God is angry with you, and he's going to judge you, man. And you better be ready, because here it comes. That's not God's heart toward people. People's hearts were intrinsically evil all the time. And what did he do? Well, he sends the flood here and restarts, and we're going to spend three weeks talking about it. But what does he do when he looks down, and the Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one does. No one is righteous. No, not one. So what does God do? He sends his son on our behalf to be abridged, to create a way. I'll get to the last point, but it wasn't God's 
anger that did away with the world. It was his holiness, justness, and his love. What else did he see? He saw Noah's heart. And Ted talked about, look, uh, these are the generations of Noah, verse 9. Now, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. There's a lot to unpack in there. I'm thankful for what Ted took us through last week. If you're here last week and uh, you were encouraged by, by Pastor Ted's message, let's, uh, let's give him a hand because it was good. We, now we know a little something about Ted. Third grade was rough for him. You know what I'm saying? It kind of all went downhill from there. He was lying, cheating, and stealing. Oh, wait, no, that was me. Third grade was a rough year for me as well. I got caught cheating on my first test at school in third grade. Those one-minute math tests, did anybody have to take those? Oh, those stupid things. I couldn't get past the division one. How many problems you could do in a minute, the long division? And a lot of people had already gotten past that part. And so I would just like do a few before the timer started. And I remember Miss Cochran, God bless her, walked around. She thought she saw something. She walked over. She flipped over my paper. And there was such a look of disappointment and judgment. I got in a lot of trouble for that. And I got started. That was the start of the time in my life where I got progress reports. I've been bred to live a legalistic life since way before I was a Christian because every day I got a progress report sent home, and depending on what that progress report said was depending on how my grandpa was going to treat me that day. And he was an Air Force dude, and he didn't put up with no crap. And so I learned this whole thing. If I do this, people like me. If I do this, people get mad. So if you're going to do this, make sure people don't know about it. That's a long story, everyone. Here's something that God also saw. He saw Noah's heart. Someone who, did Noah have it together? Or was Noah perfect? No, because Noah was a human being. We know he's not perfect because he was married with kids. Not that that makes you imperfect, but just saying, you want people to really know who you are, have an equal yet opposite person that you've given your life to serve them and them to you, there's going to be some rub. Our spouses know we're not perfect. Our kids know we're not perfect. But Noah stood out in his generation so much so the Bible says he was righteous and blameless. Why? Because he walked with God and he obeyed God. He was the vessel that God used to preserve the remnant of his good creation to start over. That's a principle in the Bible. You know that? God can do a lot with a little. God can take what you give to him little with faith and generosity and gladness of heart. He says, because God's favorite math, by the way, since we're on the subject, his favorite math is not addition or subtraction, it's multiplication. He puts it in all of creation. Look at the way seeds produce. Look at, look at the way, he, that's what he says, Look at how things multiply. God can multiply things in your life. So he saw Noah's heart. So maybe some of you identify with Noah. You're just like, dude, the world is a crazy place. I don't know how to 
feel about sending, you know, about these things with my kids or this thing at work or what's going on in the news, all of this stuff, but you just have a gladness and a simplicity of heart that just says, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. Because guess what? Tomorrow's Monday. Like Mondays, it's like, it's just waiting for us. We got stuff to do. Just regular old day-to-day stuff. But God can work in that, just like he did with Noah. You know how long it took Noah to build this stinking boat? No one had ever built a boat before. And actually, I don't even know if he actually built a boat. He built a huge box. That's for sure. But, you know, there was good, we'll look at the dimensions of it next week. But he built this thing. took him 120 years of his life. Every day. And people are like, what are you doing? I knew you Christians were crazy. Why are you giving to this thing? Why are you doing this thing? Because this is what God says to follow him. And this is what I believe that he's doing in my life. And what I believe that he wants to provide space for others. That's what Noah was doing, building a place that provided space for those to enter. God saw that. Here's another thing God saw. He saw so he saw the heart wicked and good. He saw the hurt. Verse 6, and the Lord regretted. This is a heavy verse. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And then skip down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. When God looked, he saw, it says it grieved him to his heart. You know what this made me think of? In uh, the New Testament, Jesus has an interaction. His friend, Lazarus, has died. Now, God is God, and he knows all things, right? Right? Right. So, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, John chapter 12, I think. Um, it's not in my notes. 13, maybe. But Jesus, uh, Lazarus's sisters come to, to Jesus. And because um, Jesus had heard that Lazarus was sick and a messenger came and then Jesus told people, no, we're going we're gonna to not go to where Lazarus is. We're going to stay where we're at. And he stays for like three more days. And then he leaves. And then on the way, Mary and Martha come to Jesus. And they're like really confused and, and heartbroken. Because they know that Jesus loves them. They know that God is good. And they know that he loved their brother. But they're like, where have you been? What is, what is the deal? Where, why haven't you been here? And they said, if you had only been here, our brother Lazarus would still be alive. And this is where Jesus says some famous stuff like, do you believe that your brother will rise on the last day? And Martha's like, yes, Lord, you know I believe um, that I'll see him again when you rise him on the last day. And that's when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life. 
And then Mary comes, and she's just weeping. And then here's the, here's the point. Jesus goes, where have you laid him? And they went, and they showed him, and he's behind a, the, the, the stone has been rolled over the tomb. And it says, and when Jesus saw, like, what, what the death and decay and the pain and all of that caused, this is what it says. And it grieved him to his heart. Same, same word. He was grieved in his spirit. And then this is what it says. And Jesus wept. You know that, that verse? Shortest verse in English in the Bible. Jesus wept. That's what it means for him to be grieved in his spirit. Now, did Jesus know what he was going to do? Roll the stone out of the way. Lazarus come forth. There's a, there's a sense of it wasn't con- evil, continual evil all the time. Death doesn't even have its say when God sees the whole big picture. And he calls Lazarus forth. And that's the power of the gospel in each of our lives, that regardless of where we're at, God knows that the door is never shut on someone who has an inclination that maybe God is there. Maybe there's room for me too. Maybe there's a place for me and God's family. Maybe there's forgiveness. Maybe, there, maybe, maybe I do have sin that I don't even know about. And maybe it's not that God is pissed off, excuse my language, but maybe it's that he just loves me. God sees the hurt. These words are tough because how could God regret something that he did if he's all-knowing? Actually, the word regret is this beautiful marathon. There's plays on words. This word regret in, in is naham. And it, it means, it can mean regret, but it can also mean, and more often than not in scripture, it's used as relent or let go. If you were to look up this word, you're going to get stories like the king uh, before David, Saul, when the people choose this king, and it says, and then it, God looked at him and says, and he regretted that he made him king, and he says, the kingdom will be taken away from you. He let go of his kingship. This word is also used when God is talking about judging nations in the book of Kings, when there's battles and all this stuff happening, and God says stuff like, if I declare that this thing is going to happen, and you regret, or and you relent your way, and you, or you change your way, I will relent from what is going to happen, and there will be grace for you. There will, I will not do what I said I'm going to do. So it means to relent or let go, and it says that he was grieved. This word grieve, it literally means cut to the heart. When he saw what people had become on their own. You ever had a family member or someone that you love go down a destructive path? Let me, let me add this. Have you been the person that has gone down a destructive path and people have watched you do it? The way you walk back into the room with those people tells you the unspoken relationships you've had. If you always are the bad person who can do no right, you will take that relationship and you will put it to God. But if the people who know you and love you and have watched you walk down this path and throw your life in the gutter, yet you have been broken and repentant and you've come to the Lord and asked for forgiveness and then you come to them and there's a humility and you come back and they wrap you up and they bring you back in 
and you understand what it is to have grace and acceptance, not only that you once were broken and now you can be normal, but actually you have things to provide. You have things to contribute, and people are believing in you, and they're empowering you to be what they knew you could be all along. That's grace. That's what God sees. That's what we have to understand why that didn't happen at the flood is because people's minds were made up. It was done. It was the opposite of the good in the garden. It was an evil, selfish place. People were so gnarly toward one another, even more so than they are now. And so the last thing he saw, he saw the end of a thing and the birth of a thing. The word play that I was telling you about is here. The root word for that, naham, that regret, is Noah. The same word as Noah. Now, these things would have been placed there. It's not by accident. It was placed on, on purpose. It's saying this. What was the answer for evil in the day? Faithfulness. Faith. The answer for evil is faith. What the world needed was not more time, but a new start. God looked and he saw that the time was done. That 120 years thing, there's a couple of thoughts on it. Some people says that's when people's lifespans started going from like 900 years and stuff like that to around 120 years, which is true. Um, it also, if from the moment that statement was made to the moment the flood came, was actually 120 years, so that's true too. So when God says, uh, my spirit will not strive with men or contend or delay any longer, but the days of man will be 120 years. He saw the end of a thing. They've made up their mind. This is what they want. And he, in his holiness and justice, knew that it was literally the thing, literally the end. But he didn't just see the end of a thing. He saw the beginning of the thing. He said the world needed a new start. So from God's perspective, which we've been looking at today, the flood is more about protecting the good of his world than destroying the bad. It's more about preserving the good of this world than it is about destroying the bad. But the only way to preserve the good is to cast away and move aside the evil. Next week, we'll talk about how he did that. It's so fascinating. But let's end today with this. A couple of things about the flood I just feel like we're supposed to know or be reminded of. Who in here looks at the evil in this world and wishes it would stop and wish that there could just be peace and people could be at peace with one another and there could be good in this world? I would imagine that every person in here wants good to prevail. Not as much as God does. Nobody wants good to prevail over evil more than Yahweh, creator God, who created us in his image to have partnership and dominion over this earth. He wants the good to prevail more than anyone. The flood doesn't negate that, it proves it. 
just also as he is the one who knows what good is because he created the good, he is actually the one who upholds by protecting the good. That's one truth we just need to be reminded of. It's not that there isn't evil in this world and things that are happening and one day all of this stuff will come to an end, but it makes sense when you hear stuff like with Peter, when people say, where is this God of yours who's going to do this stuff? And God's like, God is not lazy or late or slow or missing the point. He's patient. He's loving. He's full of grace that if there is a person with a glimmer of light that could see God for who he really is, he'll like hold the door open for a little bit longer. That's the time we live in. The time of the gospel. The time of the church to go forth and be the ones who are declaring who God is to the world. But oftentimes the message they're hearing is you better get it together because God sees that you sort of suck and you better hurry up or you're done. That's not, that's not God's heart. As a matter of fact, when we feel that about people, if you are a Christian and you're following God and you get a little bit of a judgmental spirit sometimes, which if we're honest, we all do, then you, like me, will also experience what it is for God to be like, yo, that's not my heart. That's a little bit of pride going on. And I'm just going to tell you that what we have going on in this room is a very special thing. A place that regardless of what happens Monday through Saturday, a place on Sunday morning where people come and you're not, doesn't matter what you drive or where you live or on a first name basis. What's happening here is special. Our city needs it. Our world needs it. Nobody wants good to prevail more than God does. Second one, nobody wants the evil to stop more than God does. So much so, he sent his son to be victorious over, no matter how long it lasts, it has no power any longer. It doesn't get the final say, God does. There is no amount of evil for those of you that are walking with God and you want to have the heart of Noah. There is no amount of evil in this world or coming against you that can stop God from carrying out his plan in your life. And in this world, some of you need to be reminded of it. You feel like the world is stacked against you. Let me tell you something. There is no amount of evil from hell itself that can stop God from doing what he has purposed, excuse me, to do in your life. Do you believe that? For as long, and here's the last one. For as long as there is breath in these lungs, which we sang that song and I was thinking about this point. As long as there is breath in our lungs, there is nobody too far gone that God can't reach. Because God says that's the time in which we live. That's the message of hope in which we are to bring. It's not the impending judgment that God is ready to do. It's the abundant grace that God wants to extend. So God's reason for the flood wasn't his anger. It was his holiness. It was his justness. And it was his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And just as Eve, 